Acts chapter 23. If you're just joining us um, here this morning, I've been preaching through the book of Acts over the past however many months. We're nearing the end of this book now. This book tells the story of how the, the message about Christ began to go out after Jesus lived, died, and rose again. And at this point in the book here, Acts 23, the Apostle Paul just recently finished his final missionary trip. He's back in Jerusalem now, and things have now gotten really bad for the Apostle Paul. Some Jews there in Jerusalem tried to kill him multiple times. Uh, He was imprisoned by the Romans, and in the last passage we looked at last Sunday, Paul just went through a makeshift trial of sorts before the Romans and before the Jewish Sanhedrin, a fearful time, most likely, for the Apostle Paul. But at the end of the last passage we saw last Sunday, Jesus himself just appeared to Paul. In his room, at night, the risen Christ promising to Paul then that Paul would not die there in Jerusalem, but he would actually ultimately go to Rome. But in this text now... The Jews there in Jerusalem try one more time to kill the Apostle Paul. Let's go ahead and pray and then we'll read. Well, Lord, we just thank you for every opportunity to open your word. We pray, Father, for your grace upon our time now as we do look at your word. Pray you would open our hearts now, Father, that we would not just read this book as black words on a white page, but, Father, you would enlighten our hearts by the Holy Spirit in order that we might see eternal truths here, that our hearts would be captured by the beauties of Christ that we, Father, would be led to run after Christ. We thank you, Father, for your majesty over all of the events of this world. And we pray for your grace, Father, to see your greatness here in this text. We thank you for it in the name of Jesus. Amen. We'll start reading in Acts 23, starting in verse 12. This is the day after Christ appeared to Paul in his room. And it says, when it was day now, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. There were more than 40 who made this conspiracy. They went to the chief priests and elders and said, we have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food till we have killed Paul. Now therefore you, along with the council, give notice to the tribune to bring him down to you, as though you were going to determine his case more exactly, and we are ready to kill him before he comes near. Now the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush. So he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. And Paul called one of the centurions and said, Take this young man to the tribune, for he has something to tell him. So he took him and brought him to the tribune and said, Paul the prisoner called me and asked me to bring this young man to you, as he has something to say to you. The tribune took him by the hand and, going aside, asked him privately, What is it that you have to tell me? And he said, the Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the council tomorrow as though they were going to inquire something more closely about him. But do not be persuaded by them, for more than 40 of their men are lying in ambush for him who have bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they have killed him. And now they are ready, waiting for your consent." 
So the tribune dismissed the young man, charging him, Tell no one that you have informed me of these things. Then he called two of the centurions and said, Get ready 200 soldiers with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen to go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night. Also provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix the governor. And he wrote a letter to this effect. Claudius Lysias, to His Excellency the Governor Felix, greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them when I came upon them with the soldiers and rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman citizen. And desiring to know the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to their council. I found that he was being accused about questions of their law, but charged with nothing deserving of deserving death or imprisonment. And when it was disclosed to me that there would be a plot against the man, I sent him to you at once, ordering his accusers also to state before you what they have against him. So the soldiers, according to their instructions, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris. And on the next day they returned to the barracks, leaving the horsemen go on with him. When they had come to Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor, they presented Paul also before him. On reading the letter, he asked what province he was from, and when he learned that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will give you a hearing when your accusers arrive, and he commanded him to be guarded in Herod's praetorium. Amen. There are times in the Christian life when things can seem just very out of control, out of God's control. You're a follower of Christ, maybe here today, a simple faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. You're now a member of God's family, and you might think with God on your side now that things in your life would just now seem very in control. Things just obviously under God's control. Every event in your life now just making sense, no disorder, no chaos, no confusion. Things clearly under God's perfect control in your life. And yet the truth is that there are many times in the Christian life when things may seem just very out of control. Like God has lost control. In your life or in this world, all things seemingly just, just, just random chaos all around you. Things suddenly appearing to spin out of control, out of God's control. Where is He? And yet a very comforting truth in the Bible that we find in this text here is that no matter how out of control things might seem, Christian, in your life or in this world... God is always still in control. Your very good and your very gracious, loving, heavenly Father, governing, guiding, directing all things, everything in your life for your eternal good. Paul says so, Romans 8.28, he says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. God ultimately causing all things, every last thing in your life, Christian, to work for your eternal good and to accomplish His eternal purposes in this world. Christians for hundreds of years have talked about God's 
providence. The Heidelberg Catechism describes God's providence like this. What is the providence of God? It is the almighty and everywhere present power of God, whereby, as it were, by his hand, he upholds heaven and earth with all creatures, and so governs them that herbs and grass, rain and drought, fruitful and barren years, meat and drink, health and sickness, riches and poverty, yea, all things come not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. Nothing ever truly out of God's control. But things can seem to be at times, can't they? Because we are so small, we are so finite, we, we, we see all things just through, through these, this, this, from a very limited and, and human perspective and many things then will just not make sense it's one reason that christians for years have talked about the mystery of god's providence it will not seem at times like god is in control but he is and just that knowledge alone christian that god is always in control can be hugely comforting in your pain in this present life. John Flavel, 1600s, wrote a very famous book called The Mystery of Providence. I would highly recommend you read it. He says this in his book. He says, It is the great support and solace of the saints in all the distresses that befall them here that there is a wise spirit sitting in all the wheels of motion and governing the most eccentric creatures and their most harmful designs to blessed and happy ends. And you know, we can see in this text here this mysterious hand of God's providence at work. There are two primary parts to this text I believe we'll look at here today. Here they are on the screen. Number one, we see a plot formed by wicked people. And number two, a plot foiled by God's providence. And the first thing, number one, is just this plot here in this text formed by very wicked people. If you look again at verse 12. When it was day, the morning after Jesus had appeared to Paul, told him he was going to Rome, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. There were more than 40 who made this conspiracy. Just stop and think about it. 40, 40 people of you, whatever, 40 of these Jews now come up with this very serious conspiracy these these men binding themselves verse 12 by an oath and the greek verb is anathematizo from which we get the word anathema it means to place under a curse or to devote to destruction these men were saying we solemnly swear that we will neither eat nor drink we will receive no substance till we have killed Paul, and if we fail, let us be cursed for all eternity, devoted to destruction. And it was an indication of their severe hatred for the Apostle Paul. 
These men actually vowing now, these Jewish men vowing to break the sixth of God's Ten Commandments, you shall not murder. But they probably didn't see it as murder, thinking they were doing service to God by killing the Apostle Paul. But it wasn't just Paul that they hated, they hated Christ. They hated Jesus. And Paul, the problem with Paul was that he was telling everyone about Jesus. That he he had lived, he had died, he had risen again to pay for the sin of the world. And now you just turn from your sin and repentance and you trust in Christ and faith. And God forgives you. And it was that message about Christ and the freeness of forgiveness through faith in Christ that just enraged these Jews. Now vowing by a curse that they would kill the Apostle Paul. And these 40 men now ask the highest Jewish council in Israel for their help. Verse 14 says they went to the chief priests and the elders. The Sanhedrin. Highest council of religious leaders in Israel. The council that had just examined Paul the day before and tried to kill him. And the Sanhedrin now joins this conspiracy. Just think about this now. This is the highest, the court of religious leaders in the land appointed to defend God's law. And yet they have now agreed to break God's law, the sixth commandment, by killing the apostle Paul. And the plan here was pretty simple. This council would ask the Roman tribune who was holding Paul at this time to bring Paul back down to the council so they could examine his case further. And the thought was that when the soldiers led Paul through the narrow streets of Jerusalem, these 40 men lying in ambush would come out and assassinate Paul. You just pause and think about what's going on here. From a human perspective... It might appear for Paul now that things are spinning out of control. God losing control a little bit of the events and the the people around Paul. God a little bit asleep at the wheel. A little uncontrollable evil now kind of slipping through and beginning to come at Paul. And yet God was still very much... In control of the events here in this text, God providentially overseeing and governing and guiding all things. A wise spirit, as John Flavel said, sitting in all the wheels of motion here, governing these most eccentric creatures and their most harmful designs to a blessed and happy end. And God will, as we see here, He'll ultimately turn this plot. He, he will ultimately work through this plot for the eternal good of his people and to fulfill his eternal purpose on this earth. You remember the evil plot against Joseph in the book of Genesis? His, his brothers plotting against him and selling him into slavery in Egypt. And where did that lead Joseph? Well, he ultimately rose then to one of the highest positions in all of Egypt, and he then saved his entire family and millions of others from a very severe famine. God turning that plot for good. Joseph later said this to his brothers who betrayed him, Genesis 50, 20, As for you, my brothers, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. God, in that plot concerning Joseph, 
was still in control, even over that evil, turned it and, and worked through it for good. And here with Paul, God was still in control. Derek Thomas says this. He says, none of the circumstances that surrounded Paul was an obstacle to God's accomplishing his purpose. God is the orchestrator of circumstances and is able to compose a symphony to his praise from the most distressing conditions. And you think about that, 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 that truth, Christian, that truth, it, it holds true for you as well. In your most distressing conditions. You know, it might feel at times like everything in your life has just exploded into chaos. Everything now out of God's control, God asleep at the, the wheel, wicked people maybe plotting against you, or wicked people maybe, maybe committing actions against you, like with, with Joseph. It feels to you like all hell has broken out, God no longer on the throne, evil is winning. And yet even in your most distressing moments, the most painful moments of your life, the most confusing moments of your life, God is still in control. And He will ultimately cause all things to work for your eternal good and the good of His people. Now listen, that does not mean that you will always understand in this life how God is in control. It does not mean that you will always see in this life how God could ever use some of those painful moments of your life for your eternal good and, and, and to fulfill His purposes in this world. You may never see, you may never understand here in this life why you have suffered the way you have, but make no mistake about it, God is in control. We, we just see things through a very limited uh, human perspective, human lenses. We are small. We are very finite. We see just a fragment of the eternal picture that God sees. But if you never understand, Christian, in this life, you, you never see, you, you never get it. How is God in control? How in the world will this ever be good for anyone anywhere? You will in the next life, understand it. Clearly. You know, in this life for Christians, it's a little like we're just too close to the newspaper. You know, the events are there, but it's right in front of our eyes. It's blurry. You can't read the words clearly. You can't yet see and understand the events of our lives clearly. But in heaven, the newspaper will be pushed back. And you will then be able to read. You will then be able to see. You will then finally be able to understand. And you will see in all the events of your life then. The mysterious and fatherly. The gracious and good. The kind hand of God's providence. All over your life, you will then understand fully 
You will understand how God caused all of those things to work for your eternal good and to fulfill His purposes in this world. But listen, until that day comes, Christian, until that day comes, when you're in heaven with Christ and you see all things clearly, the Bible says you see all things now dimly. As in through a, a dark mirror now, you, you won't see it clearly at times. And we must now just trust that God is in control at all times. You know what it is? It's that trust of Job in the book of Job when he's just suffered intensely and yet he looks up and he says, Though you slay me, I will trust you. Blessed be the name of the Lord. A Christian trust in a fallen world when everything looks dark and confusing. There's a hymn by William Cowper. It goes like this. God moves in a mysterious way His wonders to perform. He plants His footsteps in the sea and He rides upon the storm. Deep in unfathomable minds of never-failing skill, He treasures up His bright designs and He works His sovereign will. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense. Don't judge the Lord with your little finite mind, but trust Him for His grace. Behind a frowning providence, He hides a smiling face. That's one thing we see here in this text. Number one, it's just this plot formed by wicked people. But a second thing we see then, number two, is a plot foiled by God's providence. And the plot is foiled here in a way that no one would have predicted. If you look again at verse 16, now the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush. So he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. Why would none of us have predicted that? Because none of us knew up to this point Paul had a sister. It's the only time she's mentioned in the entire Bible. And we hear about her here in the sister of Paul's. Can you imagine being the sister of the Apostle Paul? Man, and his whole family might have disowned him up to this point. Becoming a Christian, they were Jewish. He was the son of a Pharisee. We don't know what happened with his, Paul, with, with his family, but he has the sister. His sister has a son. A young man, most likely a teenager here, Paul's nephew. And this nephew, this young teen, now saves Paul's life. And isn't that the way God typically works? Conquering through very small things. God conquering through weakness. I mean, you can just track it all the way through the Bible, this theme of God conquering through weakness. You ever read the uh, Lord of the Rings by Tolkien? Or if you got bored in the books, have you watched the movies uh, by by Tolkien. You got Sauron, this dark power, this evil eye, and his power spreading through all of Middle Earth. This intensely powerful being conquered by a hobbit with big hairy feet. This is conquering through weakness. That's 
A picture of the way God works, conquering through weakness. God conquering the mighty Midianites back in the book of Judges through Gideon. Gideon said himself, I'm the weakest man in the weakest tribe in all of Israel. And God says, you're perfect. I choose you. Because now everyone will know it's not you, Gideon, but me who conquered. Or God conquering the giant Goliath through David, a boy with a little stone. He he couldn't even take the armor out there to fight Goliath. Or God conquering the greatest giants of sin and Satan through a death on a cross with Christ. And God here now. God just showing his strength. Forty men in the entire Sanhedrin plotting against Paul. And God says, yeah, well, I got one nephew I'll use. And this nephew somehow, by God's grace, hears about this plot. And he runs to the barracks to talk to his uncle. And they let him. And Paul then tells a guard to take him to the Roman tribune. And the plot is exposed. You know, you read through this story... You don't hear God's name here even once with the exposing of this plot. And yet the Bible is clear. God is in control. The one who ultimately exposed this. All things, as the Heidelberg Catechism said, coming not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. And once the Roman Tribune hears of this plot... Man, he takes some drastic action. Did you catch that? If you look at verse 23 again. Then he called two of the centurions and said, Get ready 200 soldiers with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen to go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night. And for those who like math, that is 470 soldiers to escort one man, the Apostle Paul indicating, I think, how serious this tribune thought this conspiracy was. Verse 23 says, the soldiers left immediately with Paul, the third hour of the night, or 9 p.m. They're going to travel at night here under the cover of night. We see later that they traveled that night to Antipatris, 35 miles north of Jerusalem. Some of the soldiers then returned to Jerusalem the next day, while the 70 horsemen took Paul the remaining 30 miles to Caesarea to the Roman governor Felix. And the Roman tribune who sent Paul there, well, he also sent a letter with Paul, basically recapping for Governor Felix all that's happened over the past few days. And Felix, the scriptures say there, will now wait until Paul's Jewish accusers arrive in Caesarea, and Felix will then officially examine Paul, a trial that we will see next Sunday in the very next chapter. And until then, verse 35 says... Felix now commanded Paul to be guarded in Herod's praetorium. This plot by wicked people, but God's providence has now foiled the plot. And Paul is safe for now, God working through a young teen to defeat this plot. And you know, when we step back and look at all the events in this text here, I think we can see God's mysterious hand of providence working in a couple of important ways here. I want to think first for just a second here about Paul now being kept under guard by the Romans. 
Okay, because it's actually crazy when you think about it. This Roman tribune in this letter, he says in this letter that he had examined Paul in Jerusalem and found him to be innocent. Look at verse 29. He said, I found that Paul was being accused about questions of their Jewish law, but charged with nothing deserving death or imprisonment according to Roman law. The Roman tribune is saying, I found Paul to be innocent. And we'll actually hear several other Romans now in the coming chapters in Acts say the exact same thing. In chapter 25, in chapter 26, in chapter 28, he's an innocent man by Roman standards. Nothing deserving of imprisonment, as the tribune just said in his letter. And yet, Paul is not released. Guarded, verse 35 says, in Herod's Praetorium. And you might think, well, that's just so Felix examines him when the accusers get... And that's not true. Here's the thing that's easy to miss when you read through Acts. Paul will actually remain there, guarded, in Herod's Praetorium for the next two years. And don't you think... Over those two years, that this innocent man confined just might have been tempted to think once or twice, God has lost control. I was free on my missionary trips, telling everyone about Christ, but I'm now stuck here. Surely this is not God's plan for me. God's asleep at the wheel. Things are out of control. Satan has just maybe slipped one in on God. When he wasn't looking, evil is now winning. It's not fair. Have you ever had that? This is not fair. Where are you, God? And God was still in control here, providentially overseeing, governing, guiding, even Paul's confinement. God actually wanted Paul in prison for a good reason. And Paul later sees it. Paul later says this about his confinement in Philippians 1.12. He says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard, the Roman soldiers, and all the rest, the prisoners, that my imprisonment is for Christ. Paul, as an innocent man here now confined, he will now have years to share Christ with people he would never been able to reach as a free man. He will now share Christ with the prisoners. He will share Christ with the guards. And more than that, he will share Christ with the ruling authorities in the Roman Empire. Jesus in Luke 21, 12 had earlier said this to his disciples. Jesus said this, He said, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to synagogues and prisons. And you will be brought before kings and governors. 
for my name's sake, this will be your opportunity to bear witness, which Paul will now do. An innocent man in prison, as Jesus promised, who will now, for the remainder of Acts, be brought before kings and governors like Felix. In the very next chapter, opportunities, as Jesus said, to bear witness to the ruling authorities. This confinement might have looked very out of control, but it wasn't. It was the mysterious hand of God's providence leading Paul to this place. And I think we can see the hand of providence in another way working here. If we just kind of back up even a bit more and now think about this, this evil plot to kill Paul back in Jerusalem. You put yourself in Paul's shoes there back in Jerusalem when this plot came about and everything that happened. From Paul's very finite human perspective, he probably looked very out of control, like, like complete chaos. I mean, you just think about it. Roman soldiers at night rushing him from the barracks. He may not know why. And then 470 soldiers whisking him away, traveling all night long to Caesarea. It probably looked at the time totally out of God's control, but it wasn't. Do you know what happened for Paul with this crazy move to Caesarea at night? You know what just happened? Paul just took his first step toward Rome. Jesus just promised to him the night before that he would ultimately go to Rome. (laughs) And listen, in that moment, Paul might have been thinking, I'm going to go to Rome as a free man. This is going to be great. When are they letting me out of here? I'm going to get another missionary trip and I'm going to go right to Rome. Or maybe it's my well-needed vacation, man. I'm going to take a cruise to Rome. But God had other plans. Yes, Paul would go to Rome, but not as a free man. Paul will actually be confined now for the remainder of the book of Acts all the way to Rome, just as Jesus promised, but maybe not the way Paul thought he would get to Rome. might have looked out of control, but it was, again, the mysterious hand of providence leading Paul here one step toward Rome. And you know, everything we've now seen in this text, this man, this crazy plot to kill the Apostle Paul and how God has now foiled this plot. God now using this thing, working in and through this plot to fulfill his eternal purposes. Doesn't that maybe remind you of another plot that happened just a few years earlier against Christ? You know, Paul, as I've mentioned before, at this point in the book of Acts, he's now kind of walking in the footsteps of Christ. Paul's suffering here at this point in Acts is kind of mirroring. It's a a small picture of the suffering Christ had endured just a few years earlier. And we see it right here with with this plot. For, For just like with Paul right here, the Sanhedrin had also formed a plot against Christ. Here it is, Matthew 26, 3. 
Then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. But then, unlike with Paul here, Jesus was killed. And it looked on the surface like everything in the universe was now out of control. His disciples now hiding in fear at the death of of Christ. God's asleep at the wheel. Evil has just slipped one in on God. Evil's winning, but it wasn't. It was the mysterious hand of providence overseeing, governing, guiding even that most wicked of plots. God ultimately foiling that plot by raising Christ from the dead. And God now ultimately using that plot against Christ and the actions against Christ, the death of Christ, to bring salvation to millions of people. The Sanhedrin, as the story of Joseph said, might have meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. The eternal good of His people and to fulfill His eternal purposes. King David, years before the death of Jesus, he prophesied about Jesus' future death. David said this in Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers, Sanhedrin, take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, against His Christ, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. This evil plot that David foresaw to kill Christ, but what would God's response be? Here it is, verse 4, he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then He will speak to them in His wrath and terrify Him in His fury, saying, As for me, I have set my King on Zion, my holy hill, which is ultimately what God did when He raised Christ from the dead, setting His King forever on His holy hill. Wicked men plotting against Jesus, and God the Father laughed. And God used it for the eternal good of His people and to fulfill His eternal purposes. God is always in control. And please hear me, Christian. Believing that. And just resting in that by the grace of God, as hard as that might be. That can give you hope. Comfort in your confusing, your distressing, painful circumstances. You may not always see. You may not understand right now how God is in control. How God could ultimately cause all the pain of your life to work for your eternal good and to fulfill His purposes. Listen, the Christian life can just be intensely confusing at times. It just is. And if you act like it's not, you're lying. And that's hypocrisy and that's not good. Go home this week and read Psalm 88. Psalm 88. There is no light in Psalm 88. It is nothing but darkness. The final line says, darkness is my only friend. Darkness. 
That, that's just the heart of a Christian at times. It feels so dark, so confusing, so painful, so distressing. Darkness is my only friend. I, I can't see how any good whatsoever could ever come from this thing in my life. No way ever. And please hear me. It is okay to feel like that. Be honest about that. Psalm 103, God knows how we are formed. God knows that we are dust. God knows that we are very small. We are very finite beings. He knows that we see things just from this very human, limited perspective. He knows you feel the pain of confusion. He knows, Christian, you feel that pain of suffering. He he knows you're crying out, why, God? That is a cry all the way through the Bible. Do you know that? God's people crying out over and over and over again, Why, God, do the righteous suffer? Why do the wicked prosper in this world, God? Why? You're God, aren't you? Why is everything so out of control, so chaotic in my life? Why, 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 God? It is a cry throughout the entire Bible. And you know what the answer is? We don't know at times. We just don't know why the righteous, righteous through faith in Christ alone, why they would suffer. But God knows. But God knows. And at times, you just have to trust that why, what the Bible says is true. That God is in control whether or not you understand it. And it's that cry of Job in the book of Job. He didn't understand anything, I'm sure. Though you slay me, I will trust you. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And the end of the book of Job is that God rewarded Job more than he ever had. And God will reward you, Christian, maybe in this life. But for sure in the next life. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Help us to trust you, Lord. I'll end with this. Again, it's the final line in William Cowper's hymn. Judge not the Lord, Christian, by feeble sense. By your little finite human mind, please do not judge a sovereign God. He sees things way better. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust Him. Trust Him for His grace. Trust that He is in control because behind a frowning providence, behind every dark cloud in your life, Christian, He hides a smiling face. And someday soon when Christ returns, guess what? All the clouds will be gone and you will see nothing but the smiling face of God and you will then in every circumstance of your life see the very good and gracious, the kind and loving fatherly hand of God's providence over you. May God help you to trust Him. Father, we do need help. As Christians, we would stand here now and we would say, we believe. Oh, God, help our unbelief. We believe, but God, help our unbelief. 
We believe that in the midst of all circumstances, we believe somehow you're doing something that's eternally good. I may not see it in this life, eternally good. We believe, but right now all we can see is the pain. All I can feel are the, the, the circumstances, the, the acute suffering. God, help my unbelief to believe that when it's all said and done, that newspaper will be pushed away. And as I read the events of my life, it will all then make sense somehow. And in this life, Lord God, in this life, when we are, we are not yet the church victorious on the other side, we are still the church militant on this side, still beset with afflictions and suffering and pain. Oh God, help us to trust. Help us to believe, oh God, that there is a very wise and good spirit working in the wheels of all things. And even though very wicked men and women on this planet come up with very wicked plots and commit very evil actions, you are able to turn all of those for eternal good. We see it with Christ. Wicked actions turn to infinite good. First the death and then the resurrection. First the pain and then the newness of life on the other side. So help us now for everyone in this room suffering, feeling it in darkness. Oh God, help by the power of the Holy Spirit strengthen our hearts to trust you. Father, do not let us live the way this world lives. Judging all of our circumstances with a feeble, finite sense. Help us to be stronger, wiser, more mature, Lord, in Christ. Father, not judging you harshly, but trusting. Give us hearts to trust, and it's hard for us to trust. Father, when we're in pain, it's hard for us. Help us to trust you, Lord. Believe that you are working in our lives for our eternal good and to fulfill your purposes in this world. Help us, Lord, we pray. Give us a bigger vision of you, Lord God. A bigger vision. Help us to behold you, God, as you truly are. Help us to behold you, Lord God, in all of your magnificence and your grace and your your kindness and your mercy and your power and your might and your justice. Help us to behold you as you truly are and not how this world would tell us to behold you in in ways that are not true. Help us, we pray, and we thank you, Lord, in the name of Jesus. Amen.